it's really about pulling back and thinking actually what is it the user needs from us and how can we best serve them and really starting from that point not what is it that we want to tell people welcome to a brand new episode of starts at the top our podcast about leadership digital culture and change i'm paul thomas and i'm zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this episode, we're speaking to Eleanor Young, who's head of content at Housing Charity Shelter. This was a really interesting conversation about that heady topic of content. On the one hand, what makes great engaging content that draws people to your cause? On the other hand, how do you cut through with meaningful ideas and engagement in a noisy, busy world where organisations are fighting for our attention, your attention, my attention, everyone's attention. And it's content that we wanted to chat about now, specifically the recent articles about the importance of TikTok and virality of content to the music world. Zoe, you shared an essay with me by Rebecca Taylor, who goes by her recording name of Self Esteem. Um, I think both you and I are pretty big fans of that last album that she put out, really, really good album. Love Um, that album so much. It's very, very good, isn't it? Um, uh, I think a viral hit of last summer. So um, I think she's she's probably coming from a very good position and knows exactly what she's talking about. But she was writing an essay for, for The Guardian about um, how her and other female artists are starting to, and I don't think it's just female artists, but I think they're bearing the brunt of this, um, the music marketing industry, pushing artists really, really hard to come up with viral content, particularly for TikTok, but also other channels. Yeah, absolutely. And I shared that uh, reading of um, her article as as well. I think good on her for for calling this out. I think it's really interesting to hear that these uh, music companies are sort of assume that virality is something you can just contrive and make happen. And they're effectively sourcing a very significant chunk of the marketing out to these artists. And why should the artist be responsible for for that to that extent? I mean, obviously, they need to think about their personal brands and how they portray themselves online. But the fact that they're being asked to do this as well and being lent on quite heavily to do it uh, is a bit worrying, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there's a there's a sort of a discussion. We had a discussion a few a few weeks back, a couple of episodes ago. Um, about sort of changing habits uh, that come about from streaming and other things. But I was thinking we're, we're recording this a, a week away from, from Glastonbury. And uh, we were discussing Glastonbury at the kitchen table last night because it's a bit of a, an event in this house where we put the TV on and we watch it, turn the volume up. And, and I was going through the lineup and I said, oh, Kendrick Lamar, I know Ethan quite, is quite into his, um, his you know, rap and grime and stuff like that that, that his friends are listening to. And I said, oh, Kendrick Lamar's headlining. And he said, who's Kendrick Lamar? I thought, well, he's the biggest name, biggest artist in, in, in that genre, across that genre in, in, in the world. And when I played him one of the songs, he's like, oh, yeah, I know this. But he didn't know the name. So I think it's through TikTok he associated one of uh, Kendrick's songs to a whole bunch of stuff that happened last year um, around football, where... Um, influencers and other people were putting videos together with that song in the background. So the way that um, kids are discovering music is 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 different and can drive um, success of, of songs. Um, so I think it's really interesting that things like, for example, TikTok, social media, and we've just read in the last couple of weeks, Stranger Things coming back and, and almost relaunching and reigniting the career of someone like Kate Bush. 
is creating those viral moments through content. Um, but I agree, it's, it's it's really hard to create them. Yes, it is. And I think that is uh, quite a burden to place on the shoulders of, the of female artists. Yeah, and, and song structure, I think, is changing as well. Um, one of the things that people were talking about is, you know, the amount of songs now that start with the chorus. And it made me think, do you remember the um, rock set, that rock set, that 80s um, Swedish uh, household name um, who have gone forever, but they had a, a greatest hits album called Don't Bore Us, Get to the Chorus. And it's coming true. Uh, <laughs> you know, people are, are making music that starts with the, the hook. Um, and that's how the, 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 these songs are being recognised on these channels. Ah, oh, yeah. It, interesting. I read this really fascinating interview with Mark Ronson a, a, a while back where he said that obviously one of his amazing breakthrough hits was when he produced Back to Black with Amy Winehouse. And he said that that record would just not get made in the same way now and that you have to make sure that songs are about, I think, two and a half minutes because of Spotify. So it's just such a different world. And I agree, it's really interesting to see how uh, my kids are consuming music as well and how it is a lot more bite-sized. It's not about sitting down and listening to a whole album. It's about having all these different experiences going on at the same time. Yeah. So do we just have to accept that we're um, dinosaurs? We're old, we're old we're Paul. Old. We just need to accept that. I just like, you know, I, I, I still love um, sitting down in the evening, putting a record on and just sitting there, you know, maybe close my eyes, maybe read the lyric sheet as the, the songs are playing all the way through. And, th- and the other thing is the, um, the, you know, the time and the effort that artists go into to structuring albums, you know, side one, side two, do you remember that? You know, you put the big hit at the beginning of side one and the big hit at the beginning of side two and some of that stuff, the art of, of music sequencing, I think is something that's, that's, that's disappearing um, slightly. But that Kate Bush story is another, an, another thing, isn't it? Where, um, the a song from many, many, many years ago, finding a new um, lease of life through being shared in a in a in a in a Netflix show, um, and her. And I think the brilliant thing about that is her response to it. This reclusive artist who is just thrilled, absolutely thrilled to bits. Well, that's the exciting thing, isn't it? Yes. So music has become a lot more fragmented and bite-sized in some ways, and that's partly being fueled by the way in which people are using these platforms now and the algorithms that we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of it is cyclical, isn't it? So, for example, my nine-year-old, uh, she got hold of my old iPod from from years ago, and now one of her favourite artists is Little Boots. <laughs> And I love Little Boots. I still really love Little Boots. And she loves that album that came out in 2009, the first album, Little Boots. And she's really into it. It's lovely seeing this nine-year-old who wasn't even born at that time, really getting into this artist who I loved at a point when, you know, the kids weren't around. In in the month, or is it the last uh, couple of months, where um, Apple have actually uh, stopped making the iPod? They have indeed. So it's great that, great that you have that artifact. And uh, my um, my music in the car is powered by a, an iPod Classic. So long may that uh, continue to live because the minute it dies, so does the music. Hmm. <laughs> uh, nice. Talking of Apple, Apple are one of the um, organisations that um, we've been discussing in the background as well. Um, you've sent a couple of links over to me about stories coming out of the uh, the, the charity world, the third sector world around Blackboard and their funding of the National Rifle Association. 
And also, I think um, some articles that referenced all big tech organizations like Salesforce or um, uh, the NRA are a client of Salesforce. Um, and historically, I think Apple and other organizations have had links to the NRA. So what did we want to talk about with that? Yeah, so these are obviously really concerning stories, and I think it is uh, a live issue for the charity sector, and indeed it's a sort of wider issue about suppliers uh, as, as well. Uh, so when this story broke a few weeks ago, um, in fact, it's broken two waves. This is Salesforce story came out a few weeks ago, and obviously people were very concerned to hear that they were working with the NRA. And um, obviously a very significant chunk of their employees were concerned about it to the point where they they wrote to the CEO. So it's clearly caused a lot of internal dissent with their workforce too. And then following that, TechCrunch broke a story about a blackboard working with NRA, as, as you mentioned. And I think what is a really important point for the sector is that there's this very significant dependency that charities have on these platforms, we are supposed to be a sector that is above and beyond ethical and uh, is very much led by its values. So what does that then mean for the relationships with these suppliers? I've worked with so many charities that are using Razor's Edge, they're using Salesforce. Obviously, moving away from those platforms is, is very hard. You know, they're woven into the fabric of what you're doing every single day. So I think there's some very important issues to think through around how we define the risk of working with any supplier who may turn out to be doing something that's unethical and doesn't fit with your values. So how you define that risk, how you manage the risk, and also how you scenario plan for what you're going to do when a risk that you didn't anticipate emerges. And I do think a lot of this starts with the procurement process and doing really thorough due diligence on people's values. Yeah, we've had this conversation on this podcast before about Facebook, right? And um, charities and organisations making decisions to work with platforms like that. Um, you know, there was concern, and I know um, some charities I've spoken to and other organisations that um, had big challenges with the internal conversations around TikTok because of its links to China. So the, the the questions that need to be asked about these tech choices uh, are there. So, you know, briefly, what do you think charities and organisations can, can do to their governance processes to make sure that they are um, heading these off at the pass, so to speak, as much as you can? Yes, and that's the, the challenge, isn't it? Because you can't completely walk away from all of these platforms. And in many ways, this discussion is something we've been having about Facebook for years, isn't it? Because we all know mm. that there are some very significant issues with uh, their, their culture and their content moderation and some of the decisions they've made about that as well. So I think the answer to that is the same that I would have advised about Facebook in those circumstances. So what is the risk to our reputation? Um, what are we going to do about managing that risk? What are we going to do about keeping the people who serve their data secure on those platforms in as much as we can? So I think there's something there about defining the risks, documenting the risks, uh, and then just making a call on whether you're going to be using those platforms or not. And also the cost of walking away. That is the challenge, isn't it? Particularly with something like Facebook, if it's bringing in a significant chunk of donations for you, it, it is hard to walk away from that. Yeah, I think that's the big one, isn't it? The, the cost of change 
um, if you have to if you have to implement new systems, take old systems out, it's going to cost a lot of money in a in a sector that doesn't doesn't have the resources already. So it's it's really important to get right. And and it's also really important to just have that eye on the horizon and the radar and make sure that you're across all of this with everything. So that supply chain issue top to bottom is something that I think organisations need to think about. Um, and I don't know that anyone's immune either. Um, there are recent conversations about uh, Microsoft. Microsoft made a talk, going back to the sort of gaming of our last episode, Microsoft made a big acquisition of a, um, a software company where um, there was a history of bad behaviour and, and, and leadership issues around harassment and, and, and things like that. And they have to quickly uh, sort of make decisions uh, on how those companies are governed and managed um, uh, on an ongoing basis to bring them back into to the fold. So even the likes of Microsoft and Apple aren't um, aren't sort of immune from 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 these things as well. It's these big tech organisations that we just need to keep an eye on. So actually, this is a great question to ask as part of the procurement process, isn't it? Because a lot of these big tech companies do acquire other smaller tech companies for the products and also for the talent that the startups they're acquiring have. So that could be a really good thing to ask. You know, when you're acquiring new companies, how do you make sure that they're the right ethical fit with clients who are charities like us and and your values as, as the parent company as well? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One to watch, I think, and one to just keep a keep an eye on over the next few episodes. Now for our conversation with Eleanor Young, head of content at Shelter. Eleanor Young has a content career spanning well over a decade, starting out as a journalist in the heady world of glossy magazines, and quickly moving into the digital sphere where she championed a data-driven, user-centric approach to content long before it was fashionable. Now as Head of Content and Practice Lead at Housing Charity Shelter, Eleanor has driven digital transformation through content, tying networks of content designers, editors and copywriters together through communities of practice and scaling content operations by upskilling existing members of the organisation and using structured content to do the heavy lifting. She is also one of the founding members of Shelter's Digital Framework, a publicly accessible guide which sets out the principles, practices and guidance to drive modern digital throughout the organisation and beyond. Eleanor, welcome to Starts at the Top. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan, so I'm very, very happy to be here today. Oh, we're very excited to have you here on two levels. Firstly, because we're so fascinated to talk to you about your career and the amazing work you've done at Shelter. And also because we don't often get to talk to our listeners. So that's also a joy as well. So thank you so much for coming on. So just before we started recording, we were having a really interesting conversation about what content is. Uh, so could we start with that? Could you tell us uh, your hot take on what content is? Because it's one of those terms that gets thrown about a lot, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's a really interesting thing because actually content is potentially quite a vague word. You know, what do we actually mean by content? And I think sometimes it gets bandied around in big organisations and people are actually slightly unclear about it. You know, is it words? Is it a film? Is it a piece of social media? Is it 
um, you know, an, an interview with a service user. It could be one of so many different things. So I think the first thing to think about is the fact that it, you know, it means all of these different things. And I think that it's kind of that that vagueness has led to people kind of shying away from it and almost being a bit scared of the term content, really, um, because it can mean so many different things. Um, but I think interestingly, also, as another strand to that, there is just a lot of content around these days. And it can be good content and it can be bad content. Um, and I think you go online and, and on Instagram and on social media and you're kind of bombarded with lots of different things. And I think also it's kind of almost taken on this negative connotation of late that there's, there's such a lot of content out there that can become too much for people. So I think that's probably an, another reason that we've kind of seen discussion around this word. You know, what does content actually mean? become a real fight for people's attention hasn't it there's so many channels we're being bombarded with things as you said you know it might be a it might be a film trailer it might be a piece of music it might be a written article um all of these things have a have a role to play but we only have so much time for them in our, our lives so hitting people between the eyes right from the start is is probably a real um uh real a real art form um, and something that people really need to, um, to to strive for. So I'm really interested in in how uh, organisations make content count in a, in a noisy, um, distracted world. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the point that I touched on before, it's, it's thinking about the quality of the content as well. There's so much content around, but not all of it is good content. Um, and I think the thing that's most important for us um, kind of as content designers and content professionals is focusing on, you know, quality content, user-centric content. What is it that actually people want? So this kind of um, push versus pull content of, you know, projecting what you want people to know versus actually listening to people. What is it that they need and how is it that they need that content as well? In what way does it need to be presented to them? And should it be a video or a written word or a small snippet of you know, sound recording, for example. So I think it's also exploring all of those different ways and really keeping the user at the heart of everything you're doing um, rather than the other way around. You know, I think with content, again, there's this temptation that you want to project to people what you want them to know. And I think big organisations kind of take advantage of that sometimes. So I think it's really about pulling back and thinking actually, what is it the user needs from us and how can we best serve them? And really starting from that point, not what is it that we want to tell people? I love that because for me, it says that content is about a whole ethos and approach rather than a factory line. And that's what I sometimes see in the organisations that we go into, that there's so much pressure now to curate content and create it that you end up just chucking stuff out there absolutely and it's so easy to do and the world is so fast paced now and you kind of feel that pressure so I think it's it, it it's quite a big thing to step back and say actually we need to change that approach and we need to you know have this user-centric way of working that means that we are really thoughtfully creating content that is what you know what people really want and what people really need and rather than getting caught up in this very competitive, fast-moving kind of content world, which, you know, reminds me of kind of my journalism days where you were 
really, really quickly getting stuff out and kind of online, it was all about your rankings and your search performance. And it was just kind of um, quite unhealthy way of doing things. So I think now it's very much about that considered approach um, and kind of really keeping the user at the heart of everything. And targeting it as well, right? We used to sort of joke about that, that you could stand on the top of a building in London, a corporate building in London, and chuck loads of pamphlets off of the roof and they'd sort of fall and scatter in the streets and people would pick them up, but not the right people, not the people that you wanted to hear that, that message. And I think that's that's the trick as well, isn't it? Giving people what they need, but writing it from the perspective that it's going to have that universal value that you hope other people will pick up and propel it. The mythical um, piece of content that's going to go viral, for example, is really, really hard to achieve. But it's so scattergun the way some organisations do this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the content design approach is a real art form and it's that actually starting right back at the beginning and having the user research and kind of actually really knowing um, the audience and the purpose and all of those different things. So I think it's, you know, it's so much more than just a, a few pieces of words or, or a small sound recording or a film. It's kind of going right back into the depths of why are you making this and, um, and who are you helping or what, what is their need? Um, and I think it's it comes back really to that understanding of of content as a profession and kind of getting away from the olden days where content was just seen as the last thing that needed to happen in the process you know somebody could just chuck a few words into a design and that would all be fine um, and it's it's trying to get away from that and kind of educate people on the fact that you know content is hugely important and should really be the one of the first things that's considered in a piece of work not the kind of thing you get handed and some poor content designers got to hope that their words might fit into a design they've been handed so absolutely it's it's um, about moving times forward and kind of really adopting that approach and that fits in really nicely with the work that you and your team have been doing at shelter where content is a big part of the value proposition so can you tell us a bit more about where you've got to and how you're implementing that approach absolutely and it's a massive journey that we've been on I mean shelter has come a, a very long way in the last few years and we we were um once at a time where it was very kind of seen as editorial and we were proofreading and checking and it was a completely different approach and we've worked so hard over the last few years um, certainly at a kind of leadership level to really educate um, the leaders in the value of good content and actually what that what that can do for the organization and how it can help us um, achieve our goals and our strategic strategic aims so it's really been a, a kind of starting with the positioning of content and kind of that education piece helping people understand you know what it can do for them so it's, it's been quite a journey and it's about bringing the organisation along on that journey and kind of getting them to understand that value. Um, because I think traditionally content is quite undervalued and is kind of seen as the last thing. So that was a, a big piece of work. Um, and then for us, a kind of embedded content team that have been able to work cross-functionally and access all of those different skill sets has been so important and kind of really driven that digital transformation it's it's um kind of really 
upskilled the way that we've been able to work um, and, and made a huge difference to the proposition. So that kind of product approach that we've adopted um, in the last five years has been massively transformational for the way that we produce content. Um, and I think it's really interesting because there are lots of different content maturity models out there. Um, and there's a book, Rachel McConnell's book, um, which I would recommend anyone who's kind of getting into content to read or anyone that's, you know, has um, kind of senior leaders that are try struggling to understand content, why you need a content team and how to build one. Um, and she uh, has a, her own take on the content maturity model, which I think is really interesting. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but she describes the first couple of um, kind of segments on that pyramid one as reluctant content which is kind of anyone can do content you know anyone maybe a marketing person a social person chuck that content in um, and then the next stage up from that is cowboy content which is you know isn't that what we have agencies for and then you gradually work your way up to this embedded content team that kind of sits in that cross-functional approach um, so I think for us, we really worked our way up that maturity model to get to the place where actually our content producers and our content designers are sat in those cross-functional teams. Um, and it, it's really made a massive difference for our ability to produce great content. That's brilliant. And was there a process as part of that which looked to things like skills and culture change? Because it strikes me there's a lot there about different ways of working. Absolutely. I think the understanding of the different types of content role was really important because I think when we started out on our journey, the understanding of content design and what content designers do really wasn't there. So I think for us, it was um, really about creating that level of understanding and helping to demonstrate the value that content designers can bring to a project and how that great content and content design can kind of really propel something forward so I think there was there was certainly a piece around that that we had to do that kind of really created that understanding of of why we needed those roles and why they were different to um, kind of editor roles or just people popping things onto pages it was really driving that process change um, and and kind of showing not telling um, how that could make a difference yeah, and that must have been a lot of work. It must have been a real gear change in the way the organisation operated. Yeah, it was. It was around the time where we implemented the product model and we kind of adopted this different approach. So it was quite a departure for the team. And I think for us, it was kind of ensuring that our product development capacity was used where it had the most impact that services were built to the best standards, um, kind of meeting user needs and achieving our business goals. And so that emphasis on the collaboration across the disciplines, delivering value, we were kind of evidence-based, test and learn, user-focused. And I think all of those things together, it was quite a, a challenge, but that was really the crucial part of the puzzle for us is that change of approach, which allowed that to happen. And did you have to take some of that evidence to build the, the, the team? Did you have to sort of um, get leadership buy-in by saying, look, this is working, we need more of it? Well, how, how did you sort of sell that into, um, well, I'm not going to second guess and say it was a sceptical audience, but 
it was it was it was was there skepticism that this was the right way to go or was it just you know we need more of this and we need to build the team it was certainly a departure from the way of working that we currently had set up so um i don't know if there was skepticism as such but it, it was it was a a fairly radical change at the time. And I think it was understood that something needed to happen. And this, this was kind of a way that we could consider to push things forward. Um, but certainly it was, it was something very different to what we were doing at the time. So um, test and learn was a very, very important part of what we were doing and being able to demonstrate the difference. Um, and I think uh, I've listened to your podcasts over the years and I mentioned that I was very interested in the, the cast with Tom Small and his just do it approach. And I think that that is kind of you can't um, undervalue that too much. I think it's so important that sometimes with these things, you just have to go and try them and show people the effect of what, you know, this is how it might work. Um, rather than talking about it too much. So we did have to get that buy-in, but it was also really important for us that we could just go and do it and come back and kind of demonstrate the value of that approach to people. And that was what really kind of sold it in. And would you be able to share in that instance, um, test and learn is is, a really, really lovely approach. So it must mean that there were some real successes and it must mean that there were some failures, abject failures, total failures, whatever. But but how, how do you sort of balance that? Um, and, and would you tell us about uh, something that went right and something that went wrong? Oh, that's a really interesting question. You're, you're putting me on the spot there slightly. Um, I think, so some of the, the things that went right or some of the things that went really well were some of the kind of bigger media projects. So a lot of the time we'd have these really big things come in and we wouldn't be able to have that cross-functional approach, which could mean that we could, you know, come out with the the best thing that we possibly could. So I think it was a fusing of all of those different skills at the start, you know, having content design and UX and user research, all being able to work together at the beginning um, that really propelled some of those bigger projects forward. Um, so I think some of the successes have been for the bigger things, the, the new products, the big events where we've been able to demonstrate that this approach really, it kind of delivers more value. It gets you more. We have more insight into what we're doing and can design things accordingly. So I think those are, are kind of some of our bis- biggest successes um, in terms of things that haven't worked too well. I there's definitely been plenty. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm sure an example will, will come to me. But I mean, I think the thing is we, you know, we are very focused on test and learn. So we're absolutely not saying that everything's going to work. I think, um, you know, the, the fundamentals of an agile approach is that we just want to get something out there and try it. And then we'll iterate on it as we go along. So I think that the basis of that, um, kind of helped help people understand what we were doing because we were saying, you know, we will always be iterating. We just want to get something out there and test it. Um, and I think that's sometimes a scary thing for big organisations that want to just launch a product into the world that maybe they don't feel is quite ready or they want some more time or they want to spend a bit more time looking into it. And I think that's a um, something that we had to just push forward is, you know, let's just get it out there. Let's just try it. 
we'll test it, we'll learn it and we'll build as we go along. But we really don't want to spend the next six months talking about it when we could kind of already have made it. And you talked about working with other teams. And I know this is something where uh, a lot of charities would like to change that partnering with with other colleagues and other teams and I've seen when it does work in practice it makes such a difference to the quality of the content and the relevance of the content that people create do you have any advice out there for charities who may be struggling with partnering with other teams on content I think um the the best thing that you can do is is just approach people and kind of talk about it I mean I think there's there's two different strands for us at Shelter. One of them is the kind of um, stakeholder relation where we're creating content in conjunction with stakeholders. Um, and we've really tried to, again, to bring a content design approach to that and help bring those people along for the journey, whether it be kind of pair writing sessions or joint design sessions or kind of having them along to the crits. Um, that's been really important for us to kind of bring that understanding along Um, and then the second strand is for kind of colleagues and fellow content producers around the organization that you know we realized that actually there were far more people producing content at Shelter than I think we ever really knew about because in the very definition of content that we discussed at the beginning of this podcast you know it can mean anything and the breadth of those people producing content was enormous so I think for us internally it was about finding ways like the communities of practice um, where we could bring all of the content producers together and get that kind of shared understanding and alignment so even if they worked in really separate parts of the organization that actually those roles were still aligned our ways of working were still aligned and we could find a place where we could come back together and share our learnings and and work together and kind of solve joint problems as well. And does that cover um, individual employees sharing their own thoughts out on social media and LinkedIn in particular places like that? Um, no, not so much for us, although that's a, that's a very interesting concept. That's something that we've not quite explored at this point. OK, but then uh, the, on the flip side, what I've seen recently in recent weeks is the um, user-generated content you're starting to see through through Twitter where you're asking people to, to get involved and share their experiences um, through voicemail. How's that going for you at the moment? Absolutely. Yes, that's a project that we've got on the mo- on ongoing. So um, watch this space on that one. Um, but yes, again, that that's something that we just wanted to try. It chimed with this particular campaign that we're doing. So absolutely, we we we're kind of we've had some fantastic stories through as well we've had a really great response to that um, and we'll be pulling that all together for a future piece of content which will be coming soon um, but absolutely you know it's it's been we've been quite surprised at the response we've had which has been fantastic so it just shows the kind of appetite that's out there for that kind of approach. How much do you think we should democratize content production across organizations? Is it the case that anyone can do it with the right guidance and support? And you talked about pair writing and and, and help. Or is it something where we still need specialists in the mix? 
That is such an interesting question. It's almost a million dollar question at the moment. It's something that, you know, everybody's been thinking about and it's kind of a hot topic um, in content circles. I think for us at Shelter, um, we've kind of got a bit of a two-pronged approach. So we have our central teams and we have some um, kind of devolved teams that are full of content professionals that are there um, kind of overseeing Um, But as part of our content operations work, we've really um, kind of discovered that the best way that we're going to be able to scale our content operations is by, you know, devolving some of those um, kind of content rights, if you like, or kind of um, content production roles. So we're absolutely looking at how we can do that at the moment. Um, And one of the ways that we've um, started looking at that is through a content manager program that we've rolled out. And um, essentially, it's very, very basic, but it's just looking at having somebody who's responsible for every single piece of our digital estate, be it on the website, be it on the blog, you know, just making sure that somebody is responsible because the site has grown so large. We have so many different touch points that actually um, we can't, you know, no one personal team can look after those. And we've also got these amazing experts all around the organization who um, have really specific knowledge about things. So for us, it was about identifying those people who would actually be best placed to um, kind of be the guardians of those pieces of content um, and looking at how we could kind of roll that out. Um, So we came up with this content manager program um, and we have a list of, I don't know, 30 or 40 content managers throughout the organization now who are tasked with specific responsibilities for pieces of content. Um, And you know, we're not saying that they have to recreate the content or they have to um, kind of rewrite it or any of those kind of things, but they're the responsible people um, and they know that content and the material better than anybody. So um, we're asking at the moment that they they review it quarterly um, and we've got some great dashboards set up for them so they can actually look at the performance of the content um, and then we can work with them on what needs to happen to that. So firstly, It's really great for content debt because we can um, kind of really easily identify if anything's going out of date or anything needs to change. Um, And then it's a great opportunity for kind of improvements and iterations as well, because we've got people looking at things that can then come to us and say, actually, um, we've spotted an opportunity or we think something might like to change. Um, And then the content design team can work with them on whatever those changes might be, or if it's kind of slightly larger project, we can bring in the cross-functional team and we can access all of those resources. So there's lots of different options, but we found that, you know, going down that development route is is certainly um, going to be the way to scale those, um, kind of scale our content operations. And it may be in the future that we go even further with that. We've now got um, a fantastic new CMS, so we have all the capabilities. Um, So it's something that we could look at in the future. And I think um, lots of other organisations will be doing the same. Brilliant. Well, we're excited to hear how you get on with that. And I think this takes us nicely into the work that you and your team have been doing on the digital framework. And I know there was a lot of interest in that when that got launched. Can you tell everyone a bit more about what that is and how it can help them? Absolutely. I'm always very excited to talk about the digital framework. Um, So the the 
the concept of the framework is it's um, kind of publicly accessible, publicly accessible, and it sets out our principles, practices, and guidance. And it's really about how we drive digital um, at Shelter, but also kind of sharing it with the wider world. I think for content particularly, it's been quite transformational, being able to document how we use content um, from, you know, the very granular style guides and tone of voices to our content principles and how we work um, and our general approach has been um, very important in being able to align all of our content designers and producers around the organization. So from the, the central teams to the devolved teams to kind of every person that might touch upon content, I think it's been really, really important for us. Um, and the content section is owned by the community of practice as well. So it's constantly reviewed and updated and kind of iterated upon, which is fantastic. And it's been very important for aligning our teams and our partners on kind of quality standards and all sorts of other things. Um, and for, you know, our content operations and our development, having that framework has been really important in kind of giving people the confidence to, you know, go off and, um, produce some content themselves but I think just wider than that for shelter being able to demonstrate how we do digital and how you know share the principles that we work to and the devolved model of working and the digital life cycle um, it's been really important to be able to do that and we were very keen from the beginning that we wanted to make it a, a kind of publicly accessible thing that was living breathing kind of evolving all the time um and you know for anybody that finds it useful they can they can share it learn from it take parts of it do whatever they want so our intention was always that that work could be you know shared and help other charities and other organizations too and it's kind of a, a labor of love it's been in the works for several years now and um kind of initially was all sorts of different people um, who work with and kind of touch upon digital inputted into it to begin with. And we had lots and lots of sessions to kind of come up with a general framework. And now it's just about keeping it going, kind of um, constantly updating and building on it, um, which has been really, really exciting. And we, we kind of really happy to take feedback from people that have used it or have read it. Um, so if anybody has, please send us feedback in. We love to receive it um, and just kind of taking those things on board, really. It's such a great resource and we will be linking to it in the show notes. And it's brilliant. It's out there and available for charities to use. Laurie, you mentioned before we started about um, the role of leaders in content creation and that leaders have a responsibility for content. Sometimes we don't actually realise that that's what they're creating. Um, did you want to ask a question about around that? Yeah, so obviously uh, content is a big part of a lot of leaders' jobs, isn't it? It's just they may not realise. So whether it's what they tweet, it's the blogs they write, it's the presentations they go out and do, uh, it's the media interviews they, they go out and, and appear in, uh, it's actually a huge part of leadership, isn't it? So I wondered whether there was anything that you have created at Shelter to support leaders in their journey with creating their own content. 
That's such an interesting point. And I think it's very true and kind of um, speaks to that point that we discussed earlier about, you know, what is content and kind of understanding um, all of those meanings. And it is such an important part, especially for charity organisations where the leaders are doing a lot of outreach work and kind of lots of interviews and all sorts of other things. So it is hugely important. I think for us, simply having the digital framework there is a a massive piece of that because it really kind of delves into um, all of those different things. And I think that's a really important resource. So we're really trying to focus all of our efforts on having that cover every element rather than having lots of things in different places. That's where we want our kind of one resource to be. Um, And we are trying to make sure that there's plenty on there for everybody from the the leaders to kind of any anyone even in the organization um, kind of just working on content. So it's really meant to be something for everyone. But I think it's interesting that it's becoming a kind of wider topic in leadership at the moment. I think it's taken a while for people to really understand that interpretation of content and kind of realise that's what it is. And I do think it comes back to that understanding piece of kind of what what is content, essentially. I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I used to work under a CEO who didn't necessarily have the the reach in terms of numbers through social media that the the main brand did, but certainly had the reach in terms of um, attention. Um, And when when she spoke or when she spoke through these channels, I guess, it often outstripped what the brand itself was able to achieve. And I've just done a sort of a a very scientific run through my Twitter feed of a couple of CEOs and organisations. And it's not uncommon for the CEO of an organisation to have, if they're active on social media, to have an audience that outstrips the brand or the organisation that they they um, they head up. Um, so it's interesting that that, that dynamic between um, everything that you produce as a, as a content team and then the ability for that leader to go out and say something that either supports or detracts from the overall message just because they have that that wider reach. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a very interesting point. And I think, uh, you know, a large number of leaders would be in that position where they actually do have that clout and that say, and, you know, what they kind of say is very much listened to. Um, And I think it's very important for them to be mindful of that and for them to be conscious of that. And I think, it's a, a massively important tool that we can harness now that, you know, it's it's not like the olden days. Those leaders are actually a, a hugely important part of being able to get your content out there and for people to listen to it. Um, and, and obviously, as you alluded to as well, there can be instances where that doesn't work quite so well or that hasn't <laughs> gone quite to plan. Um, but I, I think, you know, um, we're, we're getting to the point now where people understand the value of that and what it can do for them and kind of how being a, a modern leader, that is part of your role. And that's one of the things that um, is, is kind of expected of you. Yeah, and the maturity of the the content plan that you that you have in place, the content team that you have in place, automatically sort of backs that leader in that position. Sorry, Zoe. It does make me think about how charities screen for this uh, interview. So I do know a number of CEOs where they've been in front of the interview panel, and what they tweeted previously has has been 
part of the questions they've been asked for for better or for worse. Um, But I wonder even whether as part of the whole process, we should be getting CEOs to create some content or to talk about how they would approach content, whether it's their social media, whether it's the presentations they give, just so that organisations get a bit of a steer for what they might be dealing with and where the opportunities could be and also the risks. Yeah, that's such a fascinating point. And I think, I mean, I'd be so interested to hear that if I was recruiting at that level, because I think it is, you know, it does go right to the top now. Content kind of infiltrates every single role and everything that we do. So it is such an interesting point that actually that could be something that you'd want to look for when you were recruiting somebody at that level. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, uh, what organisations do you admire in terms of their content? And they don't necessarily need to be in the charity sector, uh, but who are you a fan of? Oh, goodness, there's too too many to list. There's um, so many organisations that are doing content well and, and so many, I think, in the charity sector that are um, really, really putting in the work to um, kind of move their content operations forward and really starting to understand the value there. So I think there's so many people that are, are doing things in a really exciting way. Um, I think one of the things that we mentioned earlier before we started was kind of around structured content. Um, and I was saying that I'm really excited about the kind of conversations we're having around structured content at the moment. And I think it might be something to watch um, in the kind of coming months or or years even to see how different organisations are using that to their benefit because I think it's something that perhaps not everybody has realised can kind of deliver that value so I'm really interested in watching how different organisations do that. Um, I'm from a journalism background so I'm always really interested in watching how kind of my my old haunts are doing and how the, the, the women's magazine market is and how the digital um, kind of elements are doing there so I'm always watching those areas and like I say I'm I'm always interested in the the third sector and and how kind of other charities are doing as well um, and as part of the framework we've done a lot of outreach as well to kind of go out and speak to different charity organizations and kind of third sector organizations and um, understand how they're doing content and share how we're doing it and that's been so fascinating and eye-opening to see some charities are further forward in one aspect of content but further behind in another aspect Um, and some are kind of looking at the structure and how that works for them with regards to content so um, it's so hard to say choose just one person or or one organization that um, I think are doing it really well because I think there are many Um, But I think it's a really exciting time for content. I think there's lots of things that we can watch out for that are going to be coming. So um, I I definitely think it's a great time to be part of the industry. Can I chuck in an example that's completely not within the uh, the charity sphere? Those who know where I'm heading with this because we haven't mentioned football for a while. But um, I'm I'm an Arsenal fan. Um, and Arsenal this year have been absolutely fantastic with their content strategy when it comes to supporting the community. So we'll include some of this in the show notes. Um, But what they've done is they've highlighted, I think there's two or three examples where they've highlighted local businesses that Arsenal fans will 
No. So, for example, uh, on the Holloway White Road, there's the Chip Inn, which is a fish and chip shop. They did a, a video with one of the players going in there and old players going in there and ordering chips. Very funny, very well done. And then on the, the match day, when that um, that video was launched, they had the Chip Inn advertised all around the side of the, the, the stadium on the advertising hoardings. They've done so, uh, something for a local locksmith with one of the uh, one of the one of the women's team, um, Leah Williamson, um, and and just a couple of those things where they're really showing uh, how the community around the stadium, around the football, and around the, the players and the, and the fans all comes together. So it's a really nice, um, you know, very well produced, but it's sort of almost sort of user generated in a way where they are going out and they're interacting with local businesses. Um, and bringing that into the mix. And it's just uh, a breath of fresh air when it comes to the sort of the stuff that we would normally see from football teams. And they're also very, very good at uh, two two days or more the morning after a really bad performance or a string of bad performances as we've had in the last few weeks. They, um, they launch a new kit or a new Adidas design the very next day to say, look, ignore all that. Here's our shiny new kit. Um, but no, that's that's one I think we should highlight in the um, in the show notes. The uh, the chip in one was very very good. That's really interesting actually because um, obviously at Shelter you've got a, a retail arm, and I wonder whether that kind of content community approach needs to be something that charity shops consider. So there's some charity shops out there with great social media presences. But I, I think maybe I haven't seen one yet where they're, they're really talking about that sense of the wider community around the store. So maybe that's something we all need to be thinking about. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting idea. I think absolutely there's, like you say, there's some people doing it already, but perhaps could do more. But that's certainly one of the things that we've been exploring is how we can use that. Um, so absolutely, I think that's a, a very interesting observation. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, Eleanor. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for making the time to chat to us and to share so many interesting insights and tips about how to take content to the next level. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much to Eleanor for joining us on Starts at the Top. And as you probably hear from that uh, conversation, content is one of um, my constant bugbears. So it was great to, to sort of have that conversation with Eleanor and she was a good sport. So thank you for coming on. A hundred percent. Huge, huge thanks to Eleanor. Uh, it was so thought provoking and I really enjoyed her points about content uh, being really key to leadership and also organisational positioning. And I thought what she said was, was so interesting. It's going to be really informative for a lot of our listeners. Definitely. As usual, please leave us your feedback if you use a podcast app where you can rate and review. And you can also share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at at starts at the top one. And you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. See you next Thank time. Thank you very much. See you next time.